13thmooncenter.net, all spelled out, or 589-3063. I'm Fritz Homans, and meet me every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 4 at the Blues Station. We'll be departing on track 145 for a new destination every week where we'll journey across the country in search of the best toe-tapping blues music around that's guaranteed to make your soul sing. The Blues Station, every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 4, here on WERU 89.9 FM and streaming live at WERU.org. Blues to make you feel good. All aboard for the Blues Station. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Mabel Wadsworth Center, providing comprehensive sexual and reproductive health services to people in northern and eastern Maine since 1984. Insurance, Maine care, self-pay accepted, and reduced fees for uninsured clients. MabelWadsworth.org. It's about five seconds before 10 o'clock, and that means it's time for Healthy Options. Stay tuned for Healthy Options with your host, Rhonda Feynman. Good morning. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and on Healthy Options today, our focus is on the brown tail moth infestation, which is happening right now in parts of Maine. It's happening right now in parts of Maine. We have two guests today, Dr. Ellie Gordon, uh, Groden, Professor of Entomology in the School of Biology and Ecology at the University of Maine, Orono, where her research focuses focuses on insect ecology and management with an emphasis on the study of insect pathogens and invasive species. Dr. Groden and her colleagues at the University of Maine Brown Tail Moth Project have been investigating the factors which are contributing to the severity of the brown tail moth outbreak in Maine, and they're also evaluating methods which might manage the spread of brown tail moths. Our other guest, Arlene jurowitz Layton of Lincolnville, Maine, has a background in science education as a senior instructor for Cambridge College in Boston, teaching earth, space, and physical sciences. She began tracking brown tail moths after seeing the damage they were doing to trees around Camden and Lincolnville and right outside her house where there's a major infestation. What she observed and researched caused her to raise the alarm to the select board in Lincolnville where she presented her findings on the spread of brown tail moths, the devastation being caused, and the health problems resulting from this infestation in the Midcoast and in other areas of Maine. As an educator, she wants to share what she knows about brown tail moths and their hazard to our health and what we can try to do to protect ourselves. We're appreciating, and I appreciate that they're both with us by phone today to talk about what I find, frankly, a very scary and almost surreal in the dangers we're being faced with because of the brown tail moths in our midst. Welcome to WERU and Healthy Options, Dr. Ellie Groden and Arlene jurowitz Layton. Thank you for being here. Hello. Hi. Hi. We have everybody's here. Good. Um, 
Um, doctor, let's start with you. Uh, Dr. Dr. Uh, Groden, you have been doing this research, and um, can you tell us where we stand today? What What's going on with with these brown tail moths? Where Where are they right now? And um, what What's what's happening in your research right now? Well, I think um, based on the surveys that have been done by the Maine Forest Service and, and data that we've collected, uh, they now spread from about the north side of Portland up through um, the mid-coast area um, up to Deer Isle um, along the coast. And inland, we have infestations going as far north as Eddington, Old Town, Orono, um, Aetna, and um, across the state to Turner. Um, so the uh, infestation right now, as of this past fall, extended um, about uh, 126,000 acres in the state. And, uh, and we've caught moths um, further afield than this. Um, this is where we've actually seen the winter web. Already? Yeah. Well, no, this is this last winter. Oh, from last so, winter. And, and where and where the outbreak, where the caterpillars have been feeding. I see. This, um, this spring. So maybe you could get us up to speed. I'm finding it a, a little bit confusing, and I think some of our listeners are too. What do we have to, we know about, well, we don't. Tell us about the hairs. Tell us about the different stages, perhaps, and, and what you're, you're, you're learning as, as, as researching this, uh, this brown tail moth. So, so the um, brown tail moth caterpillars um, were introduced into North America back in the late 1800s, and they rapidly spread throughout the Northeast, all the way up to the southern parts of Nova Scotia and into New Brunswick through um, most of the deciduous forest areas in Maine, um, down through um, western parts of New England and the eastern part of Long Island. And they were a horrendous problem at that time um, for the same reasons that they're a problem for us now, and that is that the um, not only do the caterpillars defoliate the trees that they feed on, which um, their favorite host plants are oaks and um, uh, members of the apple family, so including apple, cherries, crab apples, um, also pear uh, and birch um, are the most common, uh, some of the most common plants they're found on. And, uh, but they also produce uh, barbed hairs. They, so on their exoskeleton, they're a very hairy caterpillar um, many of the hairs are not problematic, but some of them are. They, they are barbed, and they, within these barbed tips um, that are hollow, they contain a venom. Um, and this venom, uh, when uh, people encounter it, uh, the, the caterpillars either land on them or at high densities, these hairs become airborne. Um, it, within the area where the caterpillars are feeding. Uh, and when they land on you, these microscopic hairs um, scratch the surface of your skin and the venom is released and causes a very severe dermatitis. And people who have, um, are specifically, uh, particularly sensitive can also have uh, respiratory problems if these hairs are inhaled. 
What do we know um, then about what 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 do we do? They they have a, a life cycle. Are they toxic for the whole life cycle? No. So um, so the caterpillars have um, are somewhat unusual in that they overwinter as uh, relatively small caterpillars. Um, they overwinter in what we refer to as the third stage, um, anywhere between the second and fourth stage, but primarily in the third stage caterpillar. And the stages are all insects have exoskeletons. And in order to grow, they because these exoskeletons are hard, um, they have to shed them. Um, in order to, so that as they're feeding, they grow until they fill out their exoskeleton and can't expand anymore. And so they will produce a new larger one that uh, underneath their um, old exoskeleton, and then they will burst out of that and emerge and inflate the new exoskeleton and um, continue to feed and grow until they fill that out. Brown-tailed moth has between six and eight of these stages that they go through, these individual molts. Um, and so it's after the third molt, third or fourth molt, that they actually have, um, the, that they become toxic. And so most of that is going to be in the spring um, because they're overwintering as a third and fourth stage um, in their overwintering webs. They emerge in, from these webs in the spring, usually in late April, and they're usually sitting on the exterior surface of their um, winter web until waiting for the um, trees to mature enough that the buds swell and produce some green tissues that they can take advantage of and feed on. And then they're ready to disperse and start feeding. And then at that stage is when they uh, become dangerous, and that's from about um, late April to mid to late June, um, when they will then pupate, um, and they form these pupal nests in the trees. Um, they don't leave the trees, um, though they may silk down um, and blow in the wind in order to find other um, uh, trees to pupate on. And so they form a cocoon, and they do this by um, sometimes they, if they land on your house or deck and are forming a cocoon, they just spin their silk to, um, and pupate inside that silk. Um, if they're on a tree, they tend to use their silk to um, form a little leaf packet that they um, pupate inside, and they're protected by the not only the silk of their cocoon, but by the leaf tissue itself. And so this time of year, what we're in seeing July. are these little, yes, in July, we're seeing these little leaf packets. If you look up into the tree, you can see where there are little um, sections of leaves that have been folded together and wrapped, and the um, pupa are inside these, um, inside these nests. And what we'll see in a, in later in the month is the moths will emerge, and they're beautiful white moths with brown tails, which is where they get these their name. Um, and the males and females will fly and mate, and they're very strong flyers, um, and they're attracted to light. Uh, so they're readily seen by people in areas where they um, occur. 
and the, in and also the in massive numbers on building surfaces of buildings and around uh, strong lights. And then those the females after mating will lay their eggs in early August. Those eggs will um, mature and the larvae hatch in um, early to mid August. And they will feed and form the webs that they overwinter in. And so it's an unusual life cycle to have a caterpillar that overwinters above ground in a um, mid-stage. Wow. Okay. We are... I have to tell you, everybody here is their mouths are dropping. We didn't know about the six to eight stages. When they are flying, is it just the caterpillars that have the toxic hairs, or the moths right, themselves? Right. So, so there's particularly the the caterpillars that have the toxic hairs from the time they come out of overwintering um, through the time that they pupate. However, when they pupate and they spin those webs, they shed that final caterpillar skin. And that is the biggest shedded skin that they have. It has the most and biggest hairs and toxins. Um, so the pupal nest, although the pupa themselves are not toxic, that whole nest that they pupate in and the silk that they wrap around themselves, um, that has a lot of hairs in it. And it's been suggested that the females, when they emerge from those uh, pupal nest um, pick up some of those hairs and when she lays her eggs actually deposits the hairs on the egg masses um, but uh, so it's been suggested that there's some toxicity of the moths themselves and the egg masses but that hasn't been actually verified um, it's more anecdotal and and that's your work to, to learn about these things. Let, let me ask you, so when you're saying the the pupil and the pupae stage, is that, again, in August? Is that the part in August, again, where the... Um, no, it's usually in from uh, mid to late June oh, okay. uh, into mid-July. Okay, so, so that's the stage right now. Hanging, yeah, that's the stage that we're in right now, exactly. Okay, and I know Ar uh, Arlene uh, uh, Jurowitz, Leighton is going to be talking more uh, about things to do about this. I know... But from your point of view, as as the researcher from the University of Maine Brown Tail Moth Project, that's Dr. Uh, Ellie Groden that we're talking to here on uh, WERU Healthy Options. Um, so, is it the time in the winter that we're supposed to? That's the most the best time to try to eradicate this. Is it possible? What do we know? Uh, do they have predators? Is there something? What should we be doing? Or is there? the research there to, to see how we can um, deal with this? Well, unfortunately, this insect um, has been uh, only been a problem um, on a few islands in Casco Bay uh, and uh, the very, uh, a couple of very isolated locations on the outer tip of Cape Cod um, since the, um, uh, since the, early since the 50s and 60s, um, 1950s and 60s. And so uh, they started to become problematic um, in some along the limited coastal areas in Maine um, sometime in the uh, mid-1990s and have flared up a couple of times, but nothing 
like what we've seen in the last three years. Right. And so because of that, and it's not a problem in any other state, there's been very little um, research that's been done. Uh, and so we're kind of, uh, we're, we're really playing catch up to try to figure out what are some options for managing um, brown tail moths. Right now, the uh, you know homeowners that can uh, reach the webs um, if they're in a tree that is um, accessible, uh, such as you know, it's an apple, crab apple, or a smaller oak or um, cherry, uh, clipping the webs out in the middle of the winter is the best way to remove them from your yard. Um, there, uh, however. Uh, Many of the nests are at the top of large 80-foot oak trees. And <laughs> yes. It's really, that is not feasible, though there are um, even, it, it, there's limited access for arborists to, to get up to those kinds of levels. So, um, so we are looking at um, whether or not there are any, um, it, we're studying those overwintering silk um, uh, webs that they form, nests that they form, to try to look at um, both the structure and chemistry of those webs um, and whether or not there is anything that we can, uh, that might disrupt um, the integrity of those webs um, and be uh, such that we could target them. They're out there for a very long period of time. Um, if we could even just make them more susceptible to um, the environment, environmental conditions that we have here in Maine um, over the winter, um, it may help to uh, be an option for people to manage them. Um, Go ahead. That said, when you mentioned eradication, um, these insects have been here since the late 1800s. Um, when we talk about actually eradicating them from the state, um, that's not feasible. Once an insect is this established and as broadly established as this one, this one is, um, eradication is really not feasible. Although we only had um, detectable populations on a few islands in Casco Bay um, for many years, we suspect that they did exist um, other areas, but at such low densities that they were not problematic. Um, and uh, and have flared up from um, from those from those populations. Do so, we uh, do we know why? Oh, uh, we don't. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> um, there there are. We've looked at a. Uh, we've been doing a climate analysis to look at um, whether or not there, because obviously with our changing climates, we um, thought that that could be a. Uh, a factor, and um, we have found that uh, our warmer, um, uh, that populations fluctuate relative to um, uh, the total precipitation that we have in May and June is negatively correlated with uh, the defoliation that we see. Um, and uh, What does that mean? So that means that when we have very wet springs, as we have this year, the populations go down. Okay. When we have very dry springs like we had last year, the populations go up. 
and this is um, related to the fungus that um, yes. attacks the caterpillars. I wanted and to ask you about that. Go ahead. Yes, and this year we're seeing a tremendous um, epizootic, which is an outbreak of the fungus in the caterpillar populations. And right now um, we have very few um, uh, and in some places no detectable uh, pupae um, from Cumberland County north um, to uh, Demostata and Bristol. Uh, we are starting to detect um, and north inland up to Gardner. We're starting to detect um, the fungus just prior to pupation. Uh, over the last two weeks, we've detected it as far north as Deer Isle. Great. And, um, however, we're also at those same sites. There were a lot of pupae. So it's hard to know at this point whether or not um, we're waiting to see whether or not those pupae were caterpillars could have been infected before they became pupae. Um, and if they did, they will likely not emerge as moths. Um, however, if they were able to escape infection, the pupae themselves are not susceptible um, to the fungus. So um, They're they not susceptible, or they, they're not? Right. Oh, no. Right. So that was the question I had. Would they be in the cocoon? Would they be in that stage? But you're saying no. No, but they tend to crawl into the pupil nest. I mean, they make the pupil nest when they are actually when they actually are caterpillars, uh, oh. and and then once they have it all made, then they um, turn into a pupa inside that nest. And during so during that process, um, I have seen some dead caterpillars in pupil nests um, in Deer Isle. Uh, so uh, I. I'm optimistic that a lot of those um, individuals did end up getting infected uh, prior to pupating, and that we and so we're hoping that we will see very low moth density. Oh well, okay. Just for those who so. just tuning in, by the way, the pupae is the life stage of some of the insects. In this case, the brown-tailed moth undergoing transformation between the immature and mature stages. Is that right? Yeah. Right. Right, right. and right. the caterpillar to the adult. Right, and that's happening now, is what you're saying. Yes. Okay. Yes. Wow. Um, yes. yes. And so, what do we know? So, is that a fungus that's naturally occurring? Is that something we can use to? It isn't. It is a naturally occurring fungus. It is not um, a fungus that um, we can mass produce very easily. Um, it's a. It's extremely difficult to grow on in artificial media so um, however back in the early 1900s what they did was they um, they moved the fungus around by releasing infected individuals throughout parts of new england where the fungus wasn't um, occurring in the population naturally uh, and very much more recently they did a similar thing um, and introduced this fungus um, during an outbreak of uh, the brown tail moth that was occurring in forests in Bulgaria in its native range in Europe. And uh, they were able to successfully um, cause a disease outbreak. So right now we have um, hundreds of caterp infected caterpillars in the freezer 
um, and we are going to watch to see what happens um, uh, the naturally uh, with the populations, and that could be something that uh, would be a, a future option, would be um, to introduce the um, fungus. One of the things with a strategy such as this, though, is that you need to have the fungus there to cause the disease, out, to trigger a disease outbreak. The fungus needs to be there, but you also have to have the conditions that are favorable for the fungus to outbreak. So bringing the, so if we have extremely dry conditions, even though we would introduce the, the inoculum, the, the fungus, to an area where it isn't very abundant, it will not trigger the disease outbreak if the conditions aren't favorable for that. My, my. So, so. we do have to depend on Mother Nature for this, <laughs> um, <laughs> for this, uh, now, uh, this to succeed. Now, you have done some research in terms of... Um, in terms of uh, certain kinds of natural more uh, or less toxic uh, chemicals, is is that true? Yeah. Tell me, can you tell us about that a little bit? Yes. And Arlene uh, Drewitz, uh, Leighton, thank you so much for being patient as we get all this background information. She will, <laughs> we'll get bring you in soon. No problem. <laughs> uh, but um, so yes, can you tell us about what you're um, doing? What the kind of research you're finding? Right, so we're, we did do, um, last year we did do a field trial against the caterpillars um, that uh, in the early spring in May um, where we tested some of the um, organically certified um, biorational um, products. We looked at um, a uh, BT, Bacillus thuringiensis product, which um, organic growers would be very familiar with. It's something that um, is uh, available for control of a number of uh, pest caterpillars um, ca on, on cabbage or a number of crops. Um, and uh, to see if that was effective, we also looked at another, uh, actually a commercial fungus, which is um, very easy to mass produce and is sold as a bioinsecticide against insect pests um, called Mycotrol. Um, or Bavaria um, bassiana is the scientific name of the fungus. And then we looked at some neem products um, that are used uh, for organic growers. And of these, the um, BT was uh, successful. And that's in, B, T is in Thomas. B is in boy, T is in Thomas. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Um, and that is, and that um, with, uh, a, it, but it did require a couple of applications. Um, which uh, is somewhat problematic because it's a very expensive insect to control this way because you're spraying um, the canopy of large trees. So you generally have to, you have to hire arborists to do that. Um, and uh, making most of the cost is in the actual application, not in the material. So making two applications can be, uh, is, double the cost of, of making a single application. Now, is, is that but, application in one year, or is it at different times of year? How would that work? Um, you, well, we, um, we were wanting to try an application against the small larvae, which would have been in August. However, um, it's very difficult to, um, 
to know what trees the moths are in until they start to defoliate the trees. And by that time, it's too late because um, what these moths do is they tend to prefer, so the caterpillars were defoliating trees this, this spring, and then they pupated. And those moths, when they emerge, the females tend to seek out trees that hadn't been previously attacked. So they stay in the same area, and if there are no alternatives, they'll attack the same trees. But frequently what you'll see is um, I live on a farm and in Bodenham, and I will see one section of the oaks that um, in one area of the farm that are heavily attacked one year, and then the following year they're a little bit further down the farm in another section of trees. So um, because of that and because it's very difficult for us to know which trees they're in to lay their egg masses, um, it's very difficult to target that, um, that late, that summer stage um, before they become toxic. Although ideally that would be a nice time to get them because they would probably be more susceptible to a broader array of materials. Um, we do hope that we have a collaborator at the University of Maine who is going to be working with the Maine Forest Service, uh, new faculty, um, Matt Wallhead, who specializes in drone use in insect pest management you, you know that was our that was just our next the next question in the in in the studio here is can't yeah. we use drones isn't there some way yeah yes. so <laughs> thank you so Matt. Matt Matt is going to be looking at whether or not um, we can actually detect um, and sample and identify um, the uh, infested trees um, early enough so that um, there can be something done about it um, that there's a bigger window of time and more options for um, targeting the larvae. So we so. use the drones to spray or cut or cut out the um, There could be. There are, there are drone sprayers that are available, and that could be particularly valuable in terms of limiting the, you know, the area where, where you um, treat. Um, instead of having to come from the ground and spray an entire tree, right. um, if they're all up in the very tops of the tree, and particularly if we're thinking about trying to inoculate them with a pathogen or something that would be very targeted against them, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, being able to get something uh, up there could be favorable. Um, so, uh, but that's all very much in the early stages. Right. Um, and uh, but hopefully that could be so that hopefully down the line there'll be some more tools that will be available. What what about the we've I've read about in your on your uh, some of the research you've done about fly parasites or the uh, yeah so wasps? we are tracking we are tracking um, back in the um, early 1900s there were a large number of natural enemies that were introduced from Europe um, to try to control not only brown-tail moth, but gypsy moth and another moth um, that was introduced at that time called the satin moth, which has never actually developed into such as serious a problem as both the gypsy moth and the brown-tail moth. Um, And uh, about seven species were thought to have become established and were impacting the uh, brown-tail moth. 
um, at the time. And so um, I have a graduate student who has been tracking the populations throughout Maine over the last uh, three years to identify what of these parasitoids seem to be active in the populations and are they um, developing in high enough numbers to actually impact the outbreak. And you're talking um, about the flies or the wasps or the... They're both. Okay. Both. So of the seven species, there are several wasps and several flies um, that all um, attack the... Um, specifically, we're looking at ones that attack the caterpillar um, and uh, they uh, lay their eggs inside the caterpillar, the eggs hatch, um, or, um, or they lay a small larva inside the caterpillar, um, which hatches, and it, they basically eat the caterpillar from the inside out um, and then emerge um, from themselves. They pupate inside the, the skin of the caterpillar, and then the adult fly or wasp emerges from there um, and basically, by the time the parasitoid pupates, they have killed the caterpillar. However, the hairs, I imagine, would still be there. Right, right. So really, we're looking and at toxic whether hairs. Or not they, right, and really, we're looking at whether or not that they can they are can impact a large enough portion of the population that they would they would have an impact on the following years. Um, uh, uh, generation. Do, do birds eat these caterpillars? You know, there's a <clears throat> looking back at the historical literature in the um, uh, early 1900s. There's a, a publication that lists oh 20 or more species of birds that will feed on brown-tailed moths. I think most of those observations, um, just based on my own observations, I have once seen birds, a bird, <laughs> feeding on the caterpillar. <laughs> a um, bird. And that, and that was a Baltimore Oriole ah. um, this past spring. Okay. Um, and, uh, and, but we had a number of Baltimore Orioles in the area, and I didn't see anyone else. And they're certainly, this was an area where there was an incredible density of, um, of uh, caterpillars clustered on their winter webs. And, and which would be a tremendous food resource for birds. And birds will shift to um, prey that are at high densities fairly readily. Um, and there was nothing else feeding on them. And so I suspect that most of the bird feeding that was, although they didn't specify in the early literature, most of that bird feeding would have been on moths and not on right. the caterpillars themselves or perhaps on the caterpillars um, when in the early stages when they hatch from the eggs in uh, later August. Much tastier um, then, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, we want everything one. fresh. Yeah. We did see some bird feeding on some uh, cherries that we were monitoring down in Harpswell um, a couple years ago, and we were quite excited about that. And then we as we uh, took out our binoculars, we saw that these warblers were actually, the, the tree we were looking at was infested with both brown tail and winter moth. And winter moth are relatively hairless caterpillars, um, inchworms. And we watched these warblers specifically select 
the winter moth mm. <laughs> off the leaves and ignore the brown tail moth. They don't taste so, so good. Um, yeah, so I don't think that they in, enjoy it. Oh, my goodness. Well, mm. it, you just tuned in. We're listen, you're listening to Healthy Options on WERU. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're speaking with Dr. Ellie Groden, professor of entomology and head of the University of Maine Brown Tail <laughs> Moth Project. And Arlene jurowitz Layton, we have to get you in here. <laughs> She's a, Well, I, listen, what... what the information she's giving us is frankly critical, and so you know, whenever I know she's in the field right now sampling. Yes. <laughs> so you know, yeah. whenever she needs to go, and I'll I'll just chime in with what we're we talked about discussing. Sure. Um, let me ask you, Doctor Doctor uh, Groton, while we 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 still have you here. Um, yes, thank you, Arlene. Um, about the light situation, since they are attracted to light, mm. what, what are you finding if people turn their lights up? What are you finding about street lights? What, is there something just on that? Generally, plane? generally um, they are very strong. The, the moths themselves are very strong flyers, and they are very attracted to light. So if you are in an area um, where brown tail moth occurs, um, you, we advise you to turn off your porch lights and not um, draw them um, in and around your house um, to uh, mate and lay eggs. Um, so the males are drawn more than the females to the lights. The light trap evidence suggests that. But even so, um, the, uh, you're better off not drawing them um, to into close to your house. Um, and so you're better off to keep lights off. What about um, if you're in an area where there's an infestation? What about yellow lights? Different colors? Have you found any difference? Um, um, I, you know, I haven't looked at the, the different types of lights, and and I know that there are, you know, in terms of other insects, I would I would suspect that um, uh, some of the work that's been done with other types of moths would apply, um, but um, I haven't. We haven't looked at that specifically. So are you getting funded? I'm just going to ask you, is there money oh. through the state of well, Maine? What's going on here? Since well, this seems such a devastation. Yeah. Um, there was a bill uh, uh, in uh, the state legislature this past session um, that would support brown tail moth. Um, research. And there are actually two bills that uh, had some components of brown tail moth research to be funded in it. Um, one of them I, the, I know was tabled, and I don't believe um, that it um, ended up being funded. The other, uh, which funds um, uh, a number of activities associated with cooperative extension at the University of Maine, but also includes some funding in the future for critical issues um, that need to be addressed, pest issues that need to be addressed in the state. And it was um, indicated that one of the first um, uh, entities to be uh, targeted would be the brown tail moth. Um, and so, uh, so hopefully that will support in the future some funding. Right now, um, uh, we were able to get early on in the project some, um, uh, a small grant from a regional Northeast IPM uh, program partnership grant program which address critical issues in the Northeast um, but uh, one of the problems with uh, funding research is that right now brown tail moth is only impacting Maine 
So it's a very localized problem, and that makes it difficult to uh, compete for federal funding, right. um, specifically for management of the pests. Mm. Um, so, so most of our support, our, our program right now is supported 100% by donations. Wow. Um, and so we encourage folks to continue to support Brown Hill Moss um, research uh, and uh, through the University of Maine Foundation Brown okay. Hill Moss Fund. Okay. okay. Yeah. And the other piece is uh, also the economic aspect in, in, in our, our state for tourism is huge. I do know yes. of one uh, person who did uh, have a, often did a house rental on a lake and had to, of course, be responsible and say, we do have these insects. And literally everybody um, uh, rescinded their their uh, uh, reservations. No one's come. And so the economic for the legislators, so I think that's something that we can do as as citizens as well to make sure that we know how serious this is, not only on a personal, physical, rash level, but also on an economic level and and all over. Yes. Well, I, I, okay. is there anything you'd like to add? I know you're, you're in the field. Um, we're, we're keeping you yeah. from this critical research. We want to get you yeah. go, get back to work, Dr. Grove. Okay. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, thank you very much. And, I, um, and again, I, uh, I agree that uh, things are looking optimistic for the short term. With um, but with the fungus uh, and for this coming year, I would caution folks that it, you know, that I, whether or not it would, whether or not this ends up being a long-term um, suppression in the population is uh, really unknown at this point. We did have a small localized epizootic um, in the Bodenham, Topsham, um, Brunswick, um, and parts of Bath area in 2017. And then that was followed by uh, a drought in the latter half of the summer and uh, very dry conditions in 2018. And um, in very short order, the moths came from areas where they survived and reinfested um, the areas where the epizootic occurred. So that last year, by last fall, the populations were right back up there again. Oh so, um, so it might take several. Although we don't like to see, <laughs> for, uh, we're, we're Mainers, after we go through the winter, we want to get outside and enjoy uh, a bright, sunny spring. It, would pro- it will probably take a couple of years of that kind of weather um, to really see a, a large impact in the population. So oh my. Um, at this point, we don't know how long this insect will be um, before hopefully eventually we'll get back to um, more manageable levels. Well, um, thank you for all your hard work. We'll get the the link to the uh, Brown Tail Moth Project um, and all of that, so people can uh, can look at that and also some of your research which you have posted. And we really appreciate okay. you taking the time to be here. Thank you, uh, Dr. Um, uh, Ellie Groden, from the Professor of Entomology and head of the University of Maine Brown Tail Moth Project. Thank you for joining us. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. And uh, Arlene uh, <laughs> Drewitz Layton, you have uh, been very patient here. Uh, the science educator, you've been uh, uh, here on Healthy Options at uh, uh, WERU Community Radio 89.9. You are very much uh, 
involved in this uh, on a personal level as well as your uh, science background. Maybe you could tell, tell us, I know in, in your neighborhood in Lincolnville that there is a, a lot of devastation and you have had to do firsthand learning. What, what, what have you done to protect yourself and uh, we've learned, uh, and, and what can you add? Tell us what, what you're doing and well, what's happening. Yeah, well, I wanted to say that, um, you know, this is, uh, we're in, in, what I said in the presentation I gave to the our uh, board of selectmen, along with my um, my neighbor next door, is that we're in the beginning, we're in the middle of the beginning stages of this infestation. It's um, attacked uh, half the oaks in Cam uh, Cambridge, uh, in uh, Camden Hills. It's uh, my next door neighbor. Uh, several acres um, have been devastated. We're uh, we're uh, uh, Trees right on the roadside have been eaten, um, but in the back, um, we're not seeing that devastation yet. Um, so, when one of the things that happened, um, you know, that I I witnessed was literally uh, caterpillars from two massive oaks right in front of me in my neighbor's um, front yard. Um, were falling from her trees. Um, mm. They covered her house. Um, every day with, you know, with protective clothing, they would go out there. They'd spray their house uh, with water uh, to try to get them off, um, putting them in soapy water. Um, the clothes that they use, they have a, a, a basement that they enter. Um, they would take the clothes off you know, put them in paper, you know, in, in, in plastic bags, um, and then um, proceed, and, you know, the usual thing right now is uh, to try to use duct tape or uh, packing tape to t take the hairs off. Um, off your we skin. We were starting to use uh, duct tape, but that breaks the capillaries of your skin. <laughs> mm. So, you know, we switched to packing tape. So it's it's... On your skin. Right. Yeah. Right. If you so feel the, first, the itch. The first line was to, to do that. And I just want to say that what kind of happens, and, you know, I, um, when, I, when I was researching this in the, in the winter and I was looking at, you know, I would be posting on my Facebook page, I'm seeing, I'm seeing these uh, uh, winter uh, webs high up in the trees, especially around the watershed of Magundacook. I was seeing a few in our yard, but I didn't, you know, I didn't think that they would quite do the devastation that they, they have done. So, um, so, so one of the, you know, some of the things that we've, you know, did, and it, it's, it's also one of those things that you don't know you have an issue until you experience um, the rash mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and is, we were having lots of caterpillars all over. We were using BT on them because I researched, as an Dr. Groden said, I, I researched that, and we were starting to spray on a, a, calm, a, a calm winter day um, when, when, especially at you know in the latter part of the day, because BT is light sensitive and 24. In 24 hours, uh, you know, it, it, it will be ineffective. It's, there's a small window of time. 
And so we would be spraying those. It's something that di that attacks their digestive system. Did, did you find that effective? Well, um, you know, this is one of the problems, as Dr. Groden said, if you're trying to, you know, like me, I put on my citizen science hat, and I try to, um, I've noticed now when I look, I've seen some emaciated caterpillars. Mm. So whether that I can correlate that with the spraying, I'm not sure, but um, we've seen less of them, you know, over the last couple of weeks. And the fungus? I think, I think that they're starting to pupate, and that's, you know, kind of why we're seeing them less on the ground and less on the trees. Um, so uh, so we're uh, having to be uh, cautious uh, in even uh, trying to observe them, although um, they're fascinating. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I... One of the things I did talk to Dr. Gruden last yesterday about, uh, you know, what these pupating uh, caterpillars look like, and 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 when should you take them? You know, when, you know, one of the things they also talked about is they think that a lot of the infestation comes with them forming on the undersides of vehicles. Oh my! And so, so, um, so. When you say pupate, there that means that they're starting to build another cocoon to become moths. Yes. Well, when they're in their cocoon stage, as Dr. Groden said, they're they're in. What they actually do is they form. Um, they start to form these structures um, to begin that process of the final cocoon. And and what happens is they visit each other. They're very communal people. I mean, or or creatures. And they'll start to visit each other, and if there is an infected one that gets into that system, it gets into that forming structure, that's when perhaps they can get infected by a fungus. Okay. But if they're in a, a totally enclosed cocoon that's already formed, that's when the fungus or pathogens won't harm them. Mm. So that's something that, you know, um, I uh, belong to a bulletin board, and, you know, I've told people, well, we've got we've to be like, you know, citizen scientists here. We have to be able to understand what we're observing, mm -hmm. um, at what stage is it, and then what can we do uh, to either remove, um, you know, th these cocoons, um, you know, and I, I really caution people in that, as she said, in that stage where they're just evolving, that's actually when they're in one most of their toxic. most toxic forms. So it's basically trying to develop your own um, skills of observ observation. Mm. You know, if you're a nature lover, um, you know, really look to see what's going on in your environment and, and be... Um, just be observant. And I also mentioned to Dr. Groden that, you know, they did put in a release about the, the, the fungus, you know, and, and I did post to uh, people on the bulletin board, this is what it looks like. Yeah. Right. And, so um, that's good. And as other people said, oh, I found that too. All my caterpillars are, are dead. Well, oh, okay, did, good is this know. what you saw? Oh, okay. So I'm just saying it's one of those... Right. All right, be observant, understand what you're looking for, right. and be cautious at okay. the same time. So I want to, you know, you've had, uh, we're, I, I, you know, I, I, 
Arlene Jurowitz, Leighton, we've had such a great conversation with uh, Dr. Groton here, and I, um, and so we only have about eight minutes left. So I want to uh, get to a couple of things, and right. you're doing the work you're doing is incredible. Thank you. Well, but the skin rash, I want to talk about some of the yeah, things people are seeing, and and yeah. it's it, this is this is kind of what, what I saw is, um, you know, if you're a social media person, if somebody posts. I have the rash, what should I do? Yes. You get 30 or 40. 40. Try this. That's try right. Try that. Try this. Right. Try that. Right. This really works. That doesn't work. You know, so we don't know. protocols, you know, there's protocols from uh, Penn Bay um, in that article I gave you about what, you know, types of steroids, antihistamines, things, you know, at different stages. If you have it severely, um, often protocols, you know, um, are, are a little more, more, more strenuous, um, you know, to, uh, to uh, help you. The one thing I want to say is um, I'm not, you know, it, you can go to the CDC, um, has a whole list of things, you know, to look for, to, you know, to, to help yourself, um, you know, w windy days, dry windy days, if we have a series of them. If you're near or in an infestation area, the hairs may come, you know, may become airborne. Um, and the other thing I just want to say is even in our neighborhood, my neighbor is severely affected by this. You know, she has had to be on prednisone. I mean, it's... Yes, very serious. Um, the person next to her is somebody who seems to be immune from this. It's right? incredible. Another person, I think, another neighbor, neighbors with children down the road on the other side, they haven't been affected, but they have been very um, cautious of how they go outside and, and taking precautions. And the precautions, such as here, I'm reading long sleeves, long pants, goggles, dust mask, well, respirator, hat, <laughs> disposable well, coveralls. Is, I mean, it's is, crazy. You know, on, well, this is when it's really windy. Yes. You know, I mean, you have to also look at the weather conditions. Right. One of the things that I've been doing is looking at HEPA screening. Yes. Looking at air conditioners that have some way of stopping something that's 0.15 millimeters big. Right. You know, and so I've also wrote to a company um, that produces these. They're very expensive. Sure. And, you know, I told them what was going on here. Right. So, so it's, it's a lot of you know, digging out information. Sure. The one thing I want to say is there, you know, it's the, you know, in the CFD site and you, CDC site, you will see, um, can you become immune to this? And I think there are certain people in my, t in fam, uh, in my town are looking at that. Well, well can you know, no, I think they're saying that, in fact, if you multiple exposures actually makes you more sensitive. Well, that's what they're finding. Yes. You know, that's what uh, I just want to say that there's some people who are immune to it. Sure. There are some people who right. maybe, you know, yes. they can, you know, the, the CDC site said there's not enough research on that. I understand. And we have to get more research. But right. the HEPA filters on wet and dry vacuums can decrease the likelihood that hairs will spread. Right. Right. Don't do your laundry outside. Is this not a horrifying thing? We can't do our laundry. <laughs> yeah. We can't I just get... Wanna, may I, just, I also just want to put about what you've just said about, uh, you know, it's a systemic reaction. Yes. So, 
uh, increased exposure um, can maybe a little bit of it then can make can can uh, have an impact. I have sadly, you know, I spend sometimes, you know, chatting, uh, PMing people who have had this, and there's a woman in Hope, and this is her third year with this infestation. Mm. Um, her lungs are compromised. Yes. Uh, her, uh, the good news is that it looks like most of the caterpillars died where she was. I mean, that's what she said to me. But, you know, so you're dealing with a situation uh, It is. You know, if you have a long-term and multiple-time exposure, what does this do to you? Yes. So I think that even, you know, there's things we can do to, to be cautious. Um, there's homeopathic remedies. And, yes. You know, every, there's yes. ho- and I can even, you know, there's homeopathic remedies. Uh, in, our, in our area, Fresh Off the Farm is doing research. Yes. <laughs> they, there's a hundred sure. people have used their products. Well, we can look at that. Yes. Aveeno oatmeal baths, right? Mm -hmm. That's one product. Um, Some people have to go to the hydrocortisone. I think Kennebunk Pharmacy has something that people, has lidocaine in it. Well, I'm just going to read you. Although I hate to. I just want to read you one one little thing um, from somebody who wrote to me last, yesterday is, uh, a toxic barb is too vague for those of us who are working on the solutions to the itch. <laughs> Oral histamines have been my most effective cure at bedtime. Right. Other than that, any nerve signaling, the signal disruptor, menthol, ice, camphor, witch hazel, vinegar, lidocaine, music, and a very engrossing book. <laughs> Caledrime. <laughs> now, when I said that um, I'm not endorsing any products and such um, or companies, um, but there are things out there um, that people are, are, are talking about with uh, those kinds of products, lidocaine and, and right. hydrocortisone and things like that. But I understand what you're saying. Oh, my goodness, Arlene, we have two minutes left. Okay, I, wait, wait. Thing, I just want right, to say that... I just want to say the one thing, and I know I'm not going to, is I have been looking at how to help with donations. Okay, right? wait, wait. Arlene, uh, before we do that, I wanted to give a practical thing. This time of year for lawn mowing... Um, sadly, we have to do it after a rainstorm because uh, instead of in your in your yard work after a rainstorm, because as Dr. Groton was saying, the uh, the the uh, air the hair and toxicity is down when it's wet weather, and I'm going to put all of those things, Arlene, about donations and such on on the website. Okay, all right, well, I, yeah, good, and I just want to say that we're working on maybe crowdsourced funding, okay. and I'll, I'll oh yes, okay, but that's down the road and I but I, I really think this this is important research and okay. also the research about Thank what you. to do because I'm not, not sure this is being tracked well right we're gonna now. we're gonna do it we have one minute left Arlene it's okay. been it's such an and I, we, we need to continue this conversation clearly <laughs> you have okay. been great we've come to the end of another healthy options program and I would like to thank Arlene Jewitz Layton, who has so much more to say, and we really need to uh, make sure that she's back on this program. And our earlier guest, Dr. Ellie Groden, for educating us about brown tail moths and to help us be more aware of what we are facing and how we can try to deal with it. The websites will be on the on the on our website and our archives. We will have links to all of these things. In the meantime, if you missed any part of the program, you can go to weru.org. You can find our programs. Brown Tail Moth programs will be there shortly. You can also find our past interviews there on ticks if you've not had enough about 
insects. Many thanks to John Greenman for engineering, to Petra Hall for production assistance, and a big thanks to all of you at our WERU listeners and supporters. This is Rhonda Feynman. I hope you're not itching too much out there. Wishing you the best in health. Be sure to join us for Maine Current's independent local news, views, and culture featuring the voices of our community with your host, Amy Brown, here on the first Thursday of every month at 